0: Some events from the past seven days. Chris Hewn, a man who once aspired to be the leader of a major political party, was revealed to be a cheat and a liar. There was a large vote in the House of Commons in favoring the marriage of two people of the same sex. Malala Yousafzai, a 15-year-old Pakistani girl, was released from hospital. Each one of these stories, in some way or other, could serve as a lead-in to our study in God's word this morning. A man responds, or succumbs rather, a man succumbs to a moment's temptation and throws away his career. Christians suddenly feel themselves to be in a wilderness, in a dry and arid land, and out of step with the culture around them. A courageous girl puts her life at risk for the sake of what she believes is right. These and many more examples we could think about this morning to remind ourselves that God's Word, and especially the Gospels, are so relevant to the days in which we live. i like you to open your Bibles again, please, at Matthew chapter 4. A story we've heard many, many times. We've read it, we've heard it preached on. One thing struck me as soon as I started thinking about this passage this week, It's how we can only have known about these temptations or testings of Jesus if he had told his disciples himself. There was nobody there taking notes, remembering what happened. Jesus, at some time or other, shared with his intimate friends these details of how he had faced testing from Satan. Satan. on a par with, perhaps, the story of Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, or his great prayer that's recorded for us in John chapter 17. Just some general thoughts on this passage, first of all. Many commentators prefer the word testing instead of temptation, which appears at the heading of the passage in your Bibles. Testing is an equally good way of translating the Greek word here, and Really, I think, with many commentators, that it's much better. We get the same word used in the Greek version of Genesis 22, where some traditional Bibles say God tempted Abraham. He didn't tempt Abraham. He didn't want him to do wrong. He tested Abraham. And so I've called this morning's talk the testing of God's son. Now, artists have not helped us to get to the heart of this scene. You've seen paintings probably of Jesus... There, amidst the rocks and the desert, faced by some fearful-looking creature, perhaps a hooded monk, giving the game away by a claw coming out of his cowl instead of a hand, or perhaps a cloven hoof, perhaps even possibly someone we imagine as some sort of pantomime figure. No, Jesus' enemy is powerful. He's an enemy we know in our hearts, we know in our lives, we know the power of evil and he's anything but a pantomime figure. And the whole story is not one of an easy victory. I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of verses in the letter to the Hebrews, which we will probably come back to. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This was a cosmic battle between Jesus and the powers of evil. And although the passage is headed the temptation of Jesus, this was not an isolated incident. All through his life on earth, Jesus was battling with being the son of God and being the son of Mary. And it was a battle that went right on right there to the cross. Let's look at the setting of this passage. First of all, you will notice that it comes immediately after the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Jesus' baptism was a decisive moment, which launched Jesus' public ministry, marked by God declaring, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. A declaration that marked out Jesus as more than just one more rabbi. More than just a powerful preacher. More than a good teacher, but the one whom the people of Israel had been waiting for for centuries and longing for. This is my son. And the desert was real. The Judean wilderness is some 35 miles by 17 miles. If you've visited the Holy Land, you will know that it's a very arid, dry, very hot place, going down to the Dead Sea, which I forget how many feet it is below sea level, but it's right down deep on one of the hottest places in the Middle East. inhospitable, intensely hot, a place where it wasn't hard to be alone. And Jesus sought out solitude as we know. Although he valued the companionships of the disciples, and he must have often laughed and joked with them, yet he took every opportunity to slip away and to be at peace and in quiet and in solitude, communing with his Father. And so it's not strange to find Jesus there in the wilderness immediately after his baptism, seeking to be alone with God, which in itself is a reminder for us of the importance in our busy lives of finding time to be alone with God. And the story is hugely significant. In Luke's gospel, Adam is described as the son of God. He was placed on this earth with clear commandments from God, with responsibilities and privileges from God. And he failed. He disobeyed. The nation of Israel was described in Exodus as God's son, And God led them graciously and patiently through the wilderness, as in that reading from Deuteronomy that Gina read to us. But they failed. Time and time again, they complained, they whinged, they rebelled, they started worshipping idols. And so in the story of God's relationship with mankind, there have at this point been two monumental failures. The failure of Adam, God's son, The failure of Israel, God's son, God's chosen people. And now the responsibility falls upon a humble carpenter from Nazareth. The test of whether he would be obedient to God's commandments, whether he would walk this earth in commitment to God and in obedience to what God had revealed to him. And his 40 days in the wilderness here, described in Matthew 4, is reminiscent of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. But Jesus is not only the Son of God. He's the Son of Mary. Not God pretending to be a man, but real flesh and blood like you and me. He got tired, he got thirsty, he got discouraged, he got angry with religious hypocrisy. And this account is all about Jesus' battle within himself. How he was going to work within the tension of being man and being God and yet not fail. It was truly the testing of God's son. So let's forget about the pantomime figure. Let's forget about the set piece. What we've got in these few verses here, I believe, is an account. It's a highly stylized account of Jesus' battle against all the cosmic powers of evil that we're going to attempt for the third time to cause someone walking on this earth to be disobedient to God's commandment. And that battle was not only for Jesus' soul, but was for us. The writer to the Hebrews pinpoints it exactly, that because of Jesus' suffering and because of his victory over this testing, we too have found the source of eternal salvation. So let's look at these tests. The first test, Jesus has been without food for 40 days. And because he was thoroughly human, he was starving. Literally, in the initial stages of starving to death. A death which would have been hastened by the dry heat of his surroundings. You've seen films of the life of Jesus and they go to town on this scene, don't they? Little round stones in the shimmering desert heat suddenly appear like tasty rolls fresh from the oven. And the thought comes into Jesus' mind. But he pushes it out and tries to forget about it. But he can't stop the thought returning and it returns and it returns again. The Son of God doesn't have to be hungry. It doesn't need to be. This would be such a simple thing to do, and wouldn't he feel so much fresher? Wouldn't he feel so much more clear-thinking, able to commune with God, better able to pray if he felt a bit stronger? Why not just turn these stones into bread? No one would know. But Satan would know, and God would know. And a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8 that we heard read this morning from Moses' address to the children of Israel before they entered the promised land. A passage comes into Jesus' mind. And what does it say? Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the remembrance of these words strengthens Jesus, that he is serving a heavenly father and not serving his bodily appetites, he goes on, and there's another temptation that comes to him. Mind you, there would come a time when Jesus would satisfy the needs of other people by multiplying loaves and fishes, but it was not for him to use his miraculous powers to satisfy his own needs. And there in the scorching heat of the desert, Satan puts into Jesus' mind a picture. A picture of the temple in Jerusalem, one corner of which overlooked the drop of 450 feet to the Kidron Valley. If he was the son of God, surely he could survive a fall like that. And a voice was reminding him of Psalm 91, promising that God would take care and keep all his servants from harm. Surely God would keep him from harm. He was God's son. And it would reassure him to know that he was not alone, that God was with him, looking after him. But once again, Jesus rebuffs the temptation with a quotation from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. At Massa? What happened at Massa? Massa was the place, and Moses was reminding the people of this, of an incident in their wanderings in the desert. When they came and bitterly complained to him, God's chosen leader, give us water to drink, they said. I don't know how they imagined that he could create water out of nothing. Give us water to drink. And they were complaining about all the hardships they were suffering in the desert. And to satisfy them, God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff and water would gush out. He did this and the people's thirst was satisfied. But it displeased God because he'd wanted them to trust him. And Jesus reflects, yes, the God who could make water gush out of the rock would surely enable him to soar above the Kidron Valley and to demonstrate once and for all that he was God's son. But to ask him to do so would be to put God to the test, just as the people of Israel had done. And so Jesus triumphs over a second testing. And then in his mind's eye, Jesus sees all the kingdoms of the world, the world he had created. The world that God loved so much that he had sent his only son. The world that Jesus had come to save. A world he has lived in for 30 years. And in which he has already seen so much sin and suffering, even in his hometown. And Jesus is clear-sighted enough to see that despite all the beautiful prayers being offered in temples and synagogues, despite all the outward show of piety, Jesus has seen clearly that Satan is the ruler of this world. He'd seen clearly that he was the prince of this world. The God whom men really obeyed in their hearts, despite all their fine words and good intentions. And Jesus thinks of those who have compromised with Satan, the leaders of Israel's religions, who are hand in glove with the Roman occupiers, the Romans who are oppressing God's people and the religious leaders aligning lining their own pockets and making their own future secure by working with the occupying powers. And Jesus reflects and He must have thought on what a lonely path it is to go it alone. Could he perform the task of saving this world by himself, a lone preacher in an insignificant little country in a forgotten corner of the world? Or would it be best to align himself with the political powers, to go with the flow, to talk to those men in authority, to seek to perhaps bring some moral influence on the political process. Perhaps Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sadducees had got it right. They were keeping the peace. They weren't rocking the boat. They weren't challenging anything. Then he remembers The God his father is a jealous God who has commanded his people, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And he reflects that it's not possible to divide your loyalty because it's not possible for a man to serve two masters. It's not possible to work with the power of Satan and also work with the commandments of God. And so Jesus rebuffs this third commandment, this third temptation. And Satan leaves him, the account retells to us. Satan leaves him. But Luke says he left him for a season. No way was this the end of Jesus' temptations. I think these temptations reflect what Jesus was going through all his life. As he had the unique experience, which we shall never know, of walking this earth in a human body with a human mind, and yet knowing he was the Son of God, the divine Son of God who had existed with God before the foundation of this world. And Satan failed to divert our Savior Jesus from his divine mission. And in a world in which men have sold their birthright for a bowl of stew, in which men have sacrificed their careers for short-term advantage, in which so many communities of Christians have diluted their witness by seeking worldly power, in which men of God have been brought down for the sake of a few moments of sexual gratification, in a world in which one man, Jesus Christ, stands head and shoulders above all other men who have ever lived, the man Satan tried to break but couldn't, the man who put... 100% obedience to God above every convenient and seductive shortcut. Let's have a look at those verses in Hebrews chapter 5 once again. And let's look at one or two in chapter 4 as well. You might like to look. can't give you the page number, I'm using my own Bible here. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, as we've already been reminded this morning, our lives are not on a par with Jesus. But Jesus has lived this life in flesh and blood and experienced temptation. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. An experience we shall never know. We shall never know freedom from sin. Jesus triumphed over temptation. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence because we come to one who understands us. We come to one who sympathizes with us when we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling weak, when we're feeling that things have got on top of us, when we are feeling that perhaps we're ready to give up the struggle. And then look, let's look at chapter 5 and verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. To the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What do these verses mean? Have you ever puzzled about them? He learned obedience. Was he disobedient before? He became perfect. Was he imperfect before? No. The text doesn't mean that. He learned obedience because he learned the full depths of what obedience meant. We can throw around these words like obedience and fine, we can use them in our prayers. What does it really mean to be obedient when that obedience costs you so much? What does it mean to you and to me, to be obedient to God's command when it will be so much easier to go the other way? Jesus learned the full depth of the cost of obedience It's not that he was disobedient and then became changed. He experienced obedience to God's commands and lived out a life that's an example for us. Then he suffered and was made perfect. The word perfect in the Greek, as some of you may know, is a word that means fit for a purpose, like a tool well honed that's fit for the purpose the only person who could die in our place and achieve our eternal salvation was someone who was perfect as a man and yet also God. And Jesus, through his testing and trials, became made perfect, the perfect sacrifice, the one who went to the cross, who took a human body to the cross, who suffered real pain and real agony, who died that we might be forgiven who died that our lives might be transformed from the humdrum lives that they so easily could become and become lives lived in obedience to God and following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And as we walk this world, which sometimes does seem like a wilderness, we need God's guidance as we seek to know how we can live out Obedience within our little surroundings, within our family, within our place of work, at our school, in our church. And Jesus, knowing our weaknesses, will be there to help us.